Hello, Game of Thrones watchers. We are back by popular demand to continue discussing this amazing show and its final season. We had an amazing review dropped on iTunes last week. One of you came on and told us how much you enjoyed the show and you really liked the way that we broke down the episode. And we just wanted to right off the top say thank you. Uh, that meant a lot to us. We appreciate that. We are excited to talk about this one, probably for different reasons than we were excited to talk about it last week. So I'm Aaron, and joining me again, as with the last episode, are Aaron Hundley. Vala Margulis. And Jeremy Calcara. Hello. Now, a lot happened in episode four, The Last of the Starks. And I think that more so than last week, this week, character decision-making and some of the specific writing elements of the story might just be weighing on a couple of us more so than it has the rest of this season. So I know we have some stuff to get off our chest, and I'm just going to kick it to you guys, and we're going to dive in headfirst and see where it goes. So, Jeremy, I'm going to start with you. I would like to, to know, what did you think about this episode overall? Did you enjoy it? Are you still liking the direction that we're going? How's it working, buddy? I will say there are things about the episode that I very much enjoyed. I enjoyed the beginning bit with the funeral and John's speech. I thought that was all very touching. But after the little party afterwards and even some stuff during the party, I kind of started to get annoyed with some stuff to the end to where I would say this is definitely my least favorite episode of the season so far and my least favorite that I can remember in a while. Aaron, what about you? How did you feel about this episode overall? I'm refraining from using curse words, so I will say poop, mega poop, poop set on fire, poop smeared across all the walls of every bathroom, set on fire, and then pooped on again. Um, this episode was full of so many stereotypical tropes and so many offensive things that you would have thought the writers had learned from previous seasons not to touch or not to use in the way that they did that it was just glaringly frustrating. This episode, singularly when they did test cases, is the lowest rated episode in the entire series of Game of Thrones. So wow. not even just for this season, when they did test cases beforehand, this is the lowest rated episode in the entire season, like series. Do they not have a chance to change things? Oh no, they did. <laughs> and they just chose not to. Yeah. Now, granted, I don't know at what point in the process they do those things, but the way that I would describe this episode, and I, I talked to, uh, who did I talk to on Twitter about it? I can't even remember. My brain is so fried. I talked to them and I specifically said, the theme of this week's episode, in my personal opinion, is I get what you were trying to say or what you were trying to convey, but your script was crap. So I get the an intended gesture or the intended emotion behind what you were trying to create, but you did it in a terrible way. And then there were some things that they just straight up ignored and should not have had. Fair. So basically this episode takes us through the fallout from the Battle of Winterfell. Um, it kicks off with the funeral scene. And let's start there, because I personally thought this episode started out really strong. I enjoyed the funeral scene immensely and i say enjoy you know in the way that i was pretty wrecked emotionally seeing each character going up and lighting the bonfire with someone that was very important to them was powerful john giving this speech that kind of for the first time in a long time made me think man this guy has the chops to be a leader that was pretty cool I thought we were headed for a really good start um, i thought it was a good way to kind of get us back into the drama of the series to go from the funeral into the dining hall where everyone is kind of celebrating the victory, but there's this air still over them of, of all the loss that has incurred. And clearly everyone is changed for the first time. Like there, there is, they're never going to be the same after that battle. And you can sense that it's very much heavy on each one of them and in all the interactions. But did you guys like, did you have any problems with those two sections at all, Aaron? Or was it after those? I thought that the funerals were beautiful. I think, in my, like I, you guys know my feelings about Theon. And while I thought it was great last season, to be honest, seeing Sansa over him was far more moving to me 
And when she placed that pin on his chest, to me, that was far more symbolic than his actual death, as weird as that sounds. My only, I don't want to say problem, but my only irk about it is that John, like Kit Harrington, the actor that plays Jon Snow, completely loses his Jon Snow accent during that speech. Like, I remember watching it and I was like, why does this sound so strange? And I was like, oh, because he sounds like Kit Harrington. He doesn't sound like Jon Snow. And even he said, I guess there was an interview that, or like a quote that came out afterward that he was like, it was because he was having to project. And generally speaking, when you, like, if you've done any type of theater, when you project, sometimes it can make your dialect or your accent fall off in areas. So that would be my one irk. And like hearing that, I was like, oh, okay, that's why it sounded strange. But I don't think that I had any actual like problems with the way this, the episode opened. Jeremy, you like this part, right? I think you were mentioning that. Yeah, I thought the funeral was really touching, and I did like his speech a lot. If I had to change one thing, I suppose it would be, I really enjoyed, not to jump ahead, but later in the episode when Tyrion and Varys were talking about the realm and what the realm was and all sort of all of the unseen people that we don't see and why he cares about it, I thought it might have been nice to see maybe some other people from Winterfell that maybe weren't people that we have spent a lot of time with. I don't know, just the toll that the battle took on more than just Danny and John and Sansa and Arya, I guess would have been nice because it made the casualties to me feel a little bit small. But as far as what was there, I thought it was beautiful and shed a tear or two for sure. Yeah, I think there's only so much time you have to focus on sure. that because we have to get moving and we have to get yeah. King's Landing. And it does do, I think, a good job of spanning out across the battlefield and showing like the immensity of how many funeral pyres there are. Uh, but you're right. It does kind of hone in on those big deaths, kind of reminding us of who we lost last episode, the named characters, the ones we cared about the most. So I understand what you're saying um, in that. And I didn't have a good sense, even coming out of the Battle of Winterfell, or at the beginning of this episode, of how many people were left. Like, they never really said, oh, we've got 10,000 Dothraki left, or 5,000 Unsullied, or whatever the case was. We never heard, like, distinct numbers. And that was a little troubling to me, because I never... I thought they were all wiped out, honestly, after the Battle of Winterfell. And apparently they have enough to go march on King's Landing still. Or at least they think they do. Um, so they had them standing up behind them, at the end of the episode, they got there somehow. And so I would have liked a little better kind of representation of that, I think. But yeah, I really enjoyed this. We get into it. We get into the dining hall and there's so much going on, right? Danny gives a speech and I think that she's starting to win folks over. Then you realize how calculated what she's doing is by calling out uh, Gendry and giving him the title of Lord Baratheon of Storm's End, you notice right away that she's got an agenda. Um, I was a little annoyed, honestly, at the writing that they called that out with exposition because I picked it up immediately. I was like, man, that's pretty subtle. Way to go. Like, I know what she's doing there. And then she talks about it. <laughs> and she's like, oh, hey, I'm doing this because I'm going to win him over. And I thought, you know, old Game of Thrones would not have told us that. It would have expected us to see it in the characters and, and realize it. So that was a little bit of annoyance to me. We have Tormund interacting with Brienne and this whole weird section of can't figure out who pooped in his pants. I have no idea what was happening in there. Um, Tyrion and Jamie are having this drinking game with Brienne. And of course, Jamie's kind of flirting and we're leading to this place. It seems where those two are going to hook up. Danny and John, there seems to still be some animosity from Jan Danny as to the fact that the people are listening to John, the fact that they're looking to them. I was actually surprised, honestly, that he was the one that gave the speech at the funeral because I feel like that was something that she as the leader would have wanted to take on herself instead of giving him the opportunity to kind of win the people over. What about the dining scene? So anything stick out to you guys about that? I like the, uh, the scene with Davos and Tyrion where uh, he talks about his, like, anger toward uh, Melisandre and how he had, like, vowed to kill her. And then he's like, I never got the chance. And Tyrion's like, well, then be grateful, dude. Like, drink up. Like, cheer up. 
we all know that I stand Tormund forever and that he's secretly the love of my life and kissed by fire. But that scene where he specific like that, I don't know if she's a prostitute or not, or if she's just a girl that wants to have sex with a wildling. Um, you know, more power to you. It's hard to see Tormund and not feel those things. But when she's just like, you know, I'm not afraid of wild things. And Tormund gets that look in his eye that's like, well, maybe you should be. And I was like, okay, well, Tormund's still Tormund. And that's great. And the fact that he, like, had just gone from, like, crying his eyes out to the hound to the same, like, horny wildling that he was before is just, like, it just reinforces my love for him. And, like, while I really, really still stand Brienne and Tormund, like, I was happy to see that they wrote that burn off in a way that stayed true to Tormund's character. I do agree, though, with what you said, Aaron, is that it's very it's less spelled out in previous seasons. And at this time, it's just like, oh, see what I did? Here's exactly why I made this very calculated decision. I could not stand the fact that they've now turned Danny into this like jealous temper tantrum thrower and. I feel like Danny has every right to be angry. Like with everything that she has done, everything in her life that she has put on hold to try to better this country, to see man after man try to be pushed in front of her and tell her that she's not worthy or that she's not valid when all she's trying to do is make a better world. I'm not saying that she makes great decisions. As I said last week, I, like you said, you completely flip. I feel like this week, I, I'm like, she is justified in her frustration and her anger and her portrayed somewhat jealousy that all of a sudden this person could take away everything that she's fought for, killed for, like part of her has died for. And I just, again, I get what they were trying to convey. They just didn't write it properly. And also, I think Tormund just pooped his own pants, and that's still okay. <laughs> I really think that, just a positive about the scene, I think Amelia Clark was doing some of her best work there. Just the, you know, she does good with, like, the speeches and the all that sort of thing, but just her face gradually going from celebratory to just feeling very, very isolated, I thought was maybe the best acting I've seen from her in the whole thing. Not to say that I don't think she's good, but I was just kind of blown away by how how well she was able to portray that sort of isolation that she was feeling at the end there. I thought that was great. Yeah, I would agree. I think she's done some really good acting in this episode and really throughout the season, showing us how she is completely just falling apart. I mean, mentally, she has lost everything like you were saying Aaron I mean by the end of this episode how many men that she's loved or cared about have been killed how many people have died for her um you know she loses her best friend and and, and her, her children as silly as I think it is to call them that understanding what it means to her you have to realize it's a big big deal it's not just about the power of the dragons that they give to her it's about them as these Creatures that she's raised since birth as their mother. They're extensions. They're extensions of her. They really are. And so it's understandable to watch her falling into this completely disheveled state. And it's, it's very tragic. It's very sad, I think, to see her downfall. I came around a little bit on her and I don't hate her. I, I still think that she has to be controlled if the world is going to be saved and clearly she's being pushed into this position maybe at the end of the episode where she could make a really poor choice we'll have to find out but yeah i enjoy a lot watching the beginning of this episode even the second time that i watched it the funeral all the way through the dining hall really great after that we get into a couple of situations that are problematic and that a lot of people have had issues with and I know, Aaron, you have very strong thoughts about. So let's go ahead and tackle Sansa first. She's talking. Okay. To... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> She's talking to the Hound, which is a little weird anyway, by the way. I, I don't no, know. No, it's why not. They... It is you not weird so? at all. You don't think that they no, do? they have not seen each other since season two when he vowed to try to protect her and kidnap her away from King's Landing. I know, it is but... not weird. OK, well, it's surprising that we see them come together because we haven't seen them together in so long and they're talking and Sansa makes this claim. She says that without Littlefinger and Ramsey and the rest, 
the abuse of men in her life is what she's speaking of. I would have stayed a little bird all my life. And she seems to be making the proclamation to the hound that she's better off having gone through life being abused because it taught her something about how cruel the world was and allowed her to grow into the leader that she is now. And the reason for this is because the hound is saying how much he wishes and, you know, he thinks that she should have come with him because he could have saved her from that turmoil and that abuse. And she's saying no, that she thinks it was worth it. Um, Aaron, I know you don't like it. Tell us why you don't like it. It's not that I don't like it. I think it's trash. It's poop-covered trash set on fire. Rape is not a tool to make a character stronger. I am sick of writers consistently thinking that just because you're a victim of rape, you are going to turn it into your strength. And I'm sorry, Aaron, you may want to put a trigger warning on this episode just in case viewers or listeners are potentially going to be triggered by those talks. Um, and I should have said that beforehand. I apologize. I'm just very passionate about this subject. Like sexual assault is not something to just be used to further someone's agenda or further a script. And I'm consistently disappointed with particularly male writers that constantly think that, oh, let's brutalize a woman and that will show them how strong she really is. They'll, they'll have underestimated her by the end of this series. Like it is not a tool to use for that purpose. And the fact that they wrote in that Sansa should tell him that without those things, she wouldn't be a strong person is incredibly frustrating to me. Like you have no, idea. you had already gone through quite a bit. Like, let's be honest. Yes. Season one Sansa is not who season seven Sansa is, or like they are not the same person. They've had to grow up, unfortunately through the cruelties of this world, but the hound tried to take Sansa away post her father already being beheaded in front of her, post some abuse by Joffrey. Those things would have already had to have forced Sansa to grow up. While she would not have been brutalized further by Joffrey and then goodness knows what by Ramsay and creepily idolized and goodness knows also what by Littlefinger. I like those to say that that is why she is strong is to me unbelievably offensive and the fact that they didn't learn their lesson whenever they decided to film essentially her marital rape by Ramsey and Eric, and they didn't learn their lesson with that episode and the fan backlash that happened, that's also incredibly disappointing. They wrote the next two episodes, and honestly, like, I have such a bitter taste in my mouth about this particular scene that it makes me very, very concerned to continue on, given the way that women were written in this last episode, not just Sansa, but in particular this scene. Um, I spoke in the last episode. I have a very, very soft spot for the Hound. I have always had it, and his nickname for her little bird, I love that she, that they both use that in this scene. But the setup from the Hound was written absolutely awfully. Like, to give him the line, I heard you were bro, I heard they, I heard you were broken in, broken in hard. That is awful. That is, that, like, I, I don't even have a, a good word to convey how terrible that writing is. And, Personally, for somebody who has experienced trauma in my life, hearing somebody use it as just a passing tool is incredibly upsetting. Nobody is saying that these terrible things don't make strong people in the end, whether it be a male or a female. Yes, a lot of people are able to rise above what happened to them. But having that happen does not gate that they're a strong person. I would counter with those that are able to rise above it are because they were already strong people. Right. I'm sorry. Do you think that the hounds, specifically the line by the hound, though, is at least consistent with the way the hound speaks all the time? I mean, I feel no, like he's I, a very I, I, blunt. I don't think his was out of character. I just think it's a terrible. I just think it's a terrible line. I think it all stems from the the, the storyline in general, just the whole scene and the fact that yeah. they're even discussing it. Right is really problematic in nature. It's not, it's not problematic though. Like I, I don't have a problem with them discussing what happened to her, but there were ways that she could have said that she could have gone literally. She could have said anything like they were terrible things that happened to me. 
I would never in a million years wish them on anybody, but I've grown from those experiences. And I like, if she had declared at that point, I will make sure that it, like that those that do this under my rule in the North will be punished severely or that it will never happen again. Like they could have taken that anywhere to actually show her strength instead of just being like, well, I don't want to be a little bird anymore. So this was the best way to become a big bird. Like it's just, it's, it, it was just, it's terribly written. And the moment before this happens with the hound was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. When he was just like, I wanted to protect you. I like, I, I wish you had come with me. Like it was a beautiful soft moment between the two of them where she was just like a lot. Like what did he, he said something along the lines of there once was a time where you couldn't even look at me. Like you were too afraid to look at me. And she says, a lot has happened since then. And he's like, yeah, you're not a little bird anymore or something like that. Like there's a beautiful moment there. They didn't need literally anything else that happened after that because it was already implied in that previous statement. They didn't need any of the the additional conversations unless they were going to come from a position of strength and power, which they didn't. Yeah, that's totally fair. Jeremy, how did you react to this scene when you were watching it? Did you pick up on this? I'm just absolutely, honestly curious because I'll say I did not feel this way right away when watching it so i'm wondering if you did or didn't right away it was it felt offensive to me and aaron said that it felt like the writers didn't learn their lesson you know the rape how whatever season that was before but to me it felt even worse like they were doubling down and justifying their decision like see guys this is, this, is, this is why we did it and it's coming out of sansa's mouth now so get off our backs for what is largely i i I can't think of any other more controversial plots the show has had. So, yeah, it's hard. I did not like it at all. Yeah, I think for me, I didn't love it either. Um, I just didn't react quite as viscerally. I think it's probably because in my head, I was hearing the scene play out in the way that I wanted it to play out, if that makes any sense. Like, I wasn't paying as much attention to the words that she was using as I was the intent or what I saw as the intent of the words. And Aaron, to your point, this is what I think you were saying, even the the idea that, yes, a woman can end up stronger and in a better position because of her, not in a better position. See, it's tricky when you to, to use the word. So I understand the complications of trying to word it correctly, which is why, in hindsight, I wish they just would have, like you said, left it alone and not even gone there because it is too complicated to get perfectly right. But for me, I I really felt that the intention of it was to say, not that she wished these things would have happened, but that everything that happens to us in life makes us who we are, for better or for worse. And they may be awful, and they may be terrible, but this is who I am right now, and this is who I want to be, and because of those experiences, I'm going to rule differently, and I'm going to rule better, etc., and you're right that I I read all of that into it in my head and that they didn't put that out. And I do think having heard you talk about it and having gotten a chance to talk to you about it on Twitter and stuff over the last couple of days too, you're absolutely right. Um, And it, it worries me because I'm being honest about this. And I think that that's important because people like me are out there who don't pick up on it. And there are probably women out there who hear this and are in abusive situations or have been in abusive situations. And frankly, as much as we want to believe entertainment is entertainment and it's storytelling and it doesn't actually affect real life, that's not true. And to hear a character say that can sort of justify it in someone's head. And that's the last thing we need to be putting out into the world at this point when it comes to any kind of domestic abuse. So... I absolutely agree with you. And I also thought it was ridiculous justification. It's not like the Hound left King's Landing and had a life that was like palace life with sunshine and rainbows. I think palling around with him would have allowed her to grow up or, you know, just getting older would have allowed her to grow up and not be the person she was when she was a teenager. Yeah, just growing up allows you to grow up. Or, you know, like the fact her husband being poisoned or you know all that stuff she went through in king's landing was going to allow her to grow up without having to go be brutalized the way that the show uh did with her and this is why we need sun because it will give her a good husband nope 
<laughs> Preach. Preach. I, no, because actually the more that I thought about it after that last episode, like she was already forced to marry this man into the family that was responsible for the murder of her father and goodness knows what else. Like, don't continue to torture the girl, whether or not he's a good man or would be a good husband. Don't continue to make her live that trauma. Mm, yeah, you're right. I mean, in a sense, you're right. Like, having to Fine, remember that. I know I know, y'all stand Syrian for life, but... Yeah, well, until the show gives me a better character for her, I'm all in on Sun Syrian. There was a line, I'm trying to remember the exact words that Danny said, and I think that, in my opinion, Danny actually covers the trauma of what has happened to literally probably every now main character, every now female main character of Game of Thrones. And she says something like, she's not the girl, like she's talking to John. She says something like, she's not who you grew up with, not after what she's seen and not after what they've done to her. And in my opinion, that encapsulates everything. Like, yeah. just like with the hound, things could have just stopped and they chose, like you said, it's a terrible justification. Like they're, and I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, Sophie Turner, she she defended the writer's choice of when they aired that scene back in se- I think it was season five with Ramsey and you know what as an actor or as an actress I get it but I'm sorry like women are sick of being used as props as things that you can brutalize and claim our story for story development I'm personal I'm sick of it yeah I think that I've come around to that way of thinking as well now and it, you know it's people like you who have been vocal about it and kind of helped to show us that it is overused and that's really what it boils down to is you know we can look at the world and say oh this is reality and so of course it would be reality in our storytelling and we don't want to quote unquote people will complain and say we don't want to sugarcoat the world and pretend that these things don't happen but when you look at the number of them that happen it's kind of like the diversity issue we have in film and in Hollywood, when you start to see that so many of these stories all result in abuse as the driving factor, then you understand like there's something bigger happening here because it's how these people see women, how these people see these stereotypes. And those are informed by how people view real life to be. And I think that like, and I'm not trying to take anything away from people that have survived trauma. That, that is not what I'm trying to do by any means. As a survivor of trauma myself, I understand that we've all used phrases like going through hell made me the strongest person that I am or the woman that I am today. We, anybody that, a lot of people that have survived traumatic experiences have stated those things to multiple people. However, the way that it was written and the way that it was framed was not from a standpoint of a coping mechanism, which is what most of us would use that as, but as a statement of fact. As if these things, if they had not happened, I would not be a strong person, period. And that's what I have a problem with. But I digress, because I could talk about this for the next 10 years. <laughs> well, let's not do that. Let's maybe find something better to talk about, like Jamie and Brienne. Something else I'm angry about. Oh, no. So. Oh, gosh, yes. This is terrible. Well, okay. So we have Jamie. Kind of, well, not kind of. Jamie seduces Brienne. It's pretty blatant. He takes her back to the room. Is um, seduce the right word? Uh, yeah. I think he seduces her. It's, how, does, how does he seduce her? Well, I mean, he's kind of asking her to drink, um, getting her a little liquored up further. He's... That sounds more like taking advantage than seducing him. Eh? Um, maybe. I think getting that there's, her all liquored up? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that there... Yeah, I think that it's it's not quite that drastic. And he's a little bit forceful, too. You know, he's like... Un- he was unbuttoning her shirt before barely anything. Yeah, I know. But then he wants her to do it to him and he's really pushing it. Now we know he doesn't that want her to do it to him. She gets frustrated watching him try to do it to himself. That's true. That's true. Cause he only has one hand, but we know that this is coming, I think. And um, it's very sad, obviously watching Tormund's reaction to it. It's kind mm-hmm. of heartbreaking because he's devastated that this is taking place when the two of them leave together. So they get in the room and obviously they sleep together. Um, so first of all, how do you feel about them hooking up? And how do you feel about what happens after they hook up? I didn't like it. I was team Tormund and Brienne. And so I didn't like it for that reason. I also didn't like it just for the reason that 
I like when you can have a relationship between a man and a woman on a TV show that's just respectful and a friendship, but that doesn't have to turn sexual, because that's at least what all of my friendships with women are like, you know, and that's what uh, most people's friendships with members of the opposite sex are like. And so that kind of bummed me out. I just liked sort of the rapport with the, I guess, mild flirting that they had. And I was hoping that Tormund would get his shot there. So as far as that, I did not enjoy that at all. Jamie leaving, I try not to get too wrapped up in how the show is doing a pretty poor job of showing us how time has passed. Because uh, I think you can assume that they've been together for a few weeks at that point, just based on the machinations that are going on around them and all that stuff. But you don't really feel that. And so I thought the reason he left seemed sudden and weird. And I don't quite get what he was trying to tell her. And her reaction to it, I don't think necessarily lined up with who we know Brian to be. I suppose you could argue that we've never seen Brienne in a relationship, so who knows? So I guess overall, I did not like any of it. Fire trash bag poop. Huh. Again. So I would not say that he took advantage of her. I would just say that it was there. There seemed to be some ploys and some tactics that were utilize um but my biggest frustration is exactly the same as jeremy i it, it's like watching the doctor and donna for any of the doctor who fans out there it was wonderful to see a man and a woman exist near each other with mutual respect for the other one's talent jamie's a terrible person brianne understood that but she respected the honor she didn't even respect him as an honorable man. She respected the honorable actions that he had had, he had had and had made with her. And I think that that was my favorite part is, yeah, there was like a little bit of sexual tension and some chemistry between them, but they battled life and death next to each other. Goodness knows how many times. Like he knighted her. That was a beautiful moment. They fought side by side at the Battle of Winterfell. Um, you know, he, when they first met, he stopped those men from raping her. Like, there are a lot of instances where he shows that he does have some soul in there. And I love that. I thought that their moments of intimacy just felt very forced. And I think that it goes to an overall theme within the show. And I'll speak about this again on some of the points that we're probably going to touch on in a little bit. But it just feels like a lot of the writing for this episode specifically, it just feels like the showrunners are writing scenes and they're not writing the the series like they're they're writing specific scenes and not letting the story develop organically anymore and it just feels like everything feels very forced and whenever this happened between them yeah it was awful like and i'm not even talking about my love of torment here like it was just it just felt very unnatural like okay we're gonna make fun of brienne for being a, a virgin and then jamie stands up and he's like oh don't worry guys i'll go fix that right now like, and then you see him and Tyrion drinking in a bar, joking about it afterward. Again, I get what they were trying to say, but they conveyed it terribly. With Jamie leaving, they were trying to give Brienne a more human moment. And I get that. But I'm sorry, Bri- Sir Brienne would never sit there and beg her lover to, to stay in tears. Like, that's just not who she is. She would punch him in the face, tell him to get his together... Or, like, she, like she's going to kick his butt. I'm sorry. Like, I get it. She could kick his butt while still crying. I don't have a problem with her crying. I really don't. I, as somebody that anytime I have to have any type of difficult conversation, even if it's not even, like, an anger, I'll start crying. My body just purges through tears. It's the weirdest thing. But I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with her begging. That's really what it comes down to, is that Brienne has been a woman that we have all come to admire for being written as a strong endearing powerful incredibly intelligent woman and in this moment they they just made her so frail and weak and i just i it just felt so out of character for her it was very frustrating yeah i did not like it either um for a couple reasons the first of all being yeah i'm all about the torment brienne love i think it's more natural i think it's more realistic i think that by Doing what they did here, the showrunners are showing us that it's all about Jamie. Jamie's the important character, not Brienne. Brienne is just a person that is revolving around him to give him a more of a redemption arc. They're using this as a means of showing something that is good in Jamie. He's had this change of heart. He can fall in love with this 
beautiful, larger woman who's nothing like Cersei. So look at how much he's he's changed and he's grown instead of it being about Brienne, who deserves way better than Jamie and doesn't need to lose her virginity to a man who is clearly not over his ex because that's what it boils down to. Um, and that's what we see. That's what we see play out. And it, again, it's kind of realistic, um, frankly, from someone who's lived this at times in his life. Like I understood what was happening here with Jamie saying, I got to go back. It's ambiguous too. When he leaves, we don't know. Is he going back to kill Cersei because he's upset? Is he going back to save Cersei? Just the acting is very emotional, but it's not clear at all which way he's leaning. I believe he's going back to kill her. I believe that he feels it's his duty and that he has to do that. But the way that he treats Brienne is absolutely unacceptable. And so it kind of undercuts its own point, I guess is what I'm saying. It sets it up to be this thing that makes Jamie better. And yet in the end... His treatment of her just shows that, no, he really hasn't changed. And so what was the point of it in the beginning? All it is is using Brienne as a prop and breaking her heart hmm. and using creating... Using a woman as a prop? What? Yeah, and bringing her as this... And, and it's ruining part of her character in the process. And, and that's really, really unfortunate because we've grown to love her and she is that representative of, along with Arya, of the strength and this person that just never is going to take that no matter what. Um, so it was very disappointing to me as well. And I don't know how that gets rectified now because Jamie's gone and we're running out of episodes. I think a lot of this boils down to the books ended and D&D ran out of material to adapt, which is what they were signed on to do. And now they are required to create the story and to wrap it up. And it's a very set, small time period. And they're not George R.R. R. Martin. So I don't care if he was able to have some input and give some ideas or not. They had to create this and they're not him. And so speeding it along has caused so many of these bad decisions, I think, in which these dramatic situations just don't feel right. They feel very, very forced um, and very, very fast. Like everybody has to have drama in these last few moments because we're running out of show <laughs> and that's what the people want. And I think we talked about this a little bit last year, last, last week, rather not last year, you know, the fan service is coming into this and they're trying to predict what fans would want to see and give them that versus writing a realistic scenario. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's really problems for me as well. Like I'm not, I was not enjoying that moment what about Braun? Braun shows up with his crossbow and he has this moment with jamie and Tyrion. did you guys enjoy that back and forth did i enjoy it yes did it feel like just kind of a lame fan servicey excuse to get them all in a room together again yes but I still love Braun, and i love his interactions with Tyrion. i love his interactions with jamie it was a fun scene I liked the whole how do you double river run. I thought that was a uh, pretty funny and call back to Tyrion telling me double the bounty on him from the beginning of the show. And so I liked it, but I did feel like, why is he there? It seems like he traveled from King's Landing all the way to Winterfell for a five minute sit down with the boys. Still, it was fun. So I'll allow it. <laughs> I'm glad you'll allow it. Aaron, did you like that moment? I agree with Jeremy. The only thing that I will also add is that, in my opinion, Braun is one of the few people that has been 100% true to who he is from the very t first time you meet him up until now. He's just getting sick of doing all of these favors and not being paid what he was promised. So at the end of the day, I just love that he showed up and pulled a Rihanna move where he was just like, dude, where's my money? Like, I just want to get paid. I won't kill you if you pay me. I've been saying that from the beginning. I'll continue to work for you. I'll be quote unquote as loyal as I can be. Just give me what I, what you promised, period. And I don't think he's being unreasonable for that. No, I don't either. I actually really enjoyed this scene personally. I thought it was, he needed to show up because we knew he was coming and it was either he was going to kill somebody 
or he wasn't, you know, like, I mean, if he was to kill one of them, it's a much bigger deal and it takes one of them out of the picture for the final two episodes. So I was kind of hoping that it wouldn't go down. And I liked the banter here. I enjoyed getting to see the three of them back together, you know, talking it out. And like you said, Aaron, most of all, I enjoy that Braun hasn't changed. He is a sellsword through and through, and he has never made any projection otherwise. He's never lied and said he was going to be somebody who's he's not. He's always followed the money, and he's just doing that here. And so, like a person, not like a person, all of that comes second to Braun worrying about Braun. <laughs> and it played out in a really fun little way. I like that a lot, um, even if it doesn't have a huge plot implication necessarily. Uh, I think it, you know, it gets Braun out of the picture because he's like, I'm going to just disappear until you guys are done fighting. So I don't know where he's going to go. He'll just show up at the end, I guess, and try to claim his new title or something. I'm wondering, do you think we'll see him again? Because I feel like if we didn't see him again, that whole subplot with him was just like the writers being like, oh, crap, Jamie left and we forgot to send Braun with him. Yeah, Just an excuse to get him back together again. I wouldn't be surprised if he shows up and saves somebody totally out of character just to have a heroic moment. But I also wouldn't be surprised if we never saw him again. There was a, there was a sense of somewhat finality. Like you said, that, that scene felt like it was completely unnecessary. So by them making this promise and at the end of the day, it all just comes down to who wins this war. So I feel like either way we could see him. We could not see him. They could that like, that could just be it. And they wouldn't care. That's true. I mean, I hate to say it, but we have two episodes left (laughs) and there's only so much that can happen in these two episodes. Whatever they try to pack into these episodes is probably going to continue to feel forced and rushed because there's only two episodes and there's so much left to do. So who knows? I don't know. I I'm, I'm hoping for a Hail Mary, I guess at this point that it magically gets better and they wrap it up with a beautiful tie. The odds are against it. There's two other big plot lines, though, right, that happen in this, and I want to talk a little bit about them. The first is that John goes ahead and tells, well, John doesn't tell his brothers and sisters, his sisters, I guess, about his lineage. He has Bran tell them who he really is, and he makes them swear very, very strong, like forcibly swear on your mother, swear on your parents, they finally do, and what seems like two seconds later, Sansa spills it to Tyrion, and she seems like she has a good plan. She says, Tyrion, what if there's someone else, someone better? And that's how we know she's going to tell him about it. What did you think about this whole sibling keeping his secret, and ultimately the secret starting to spread? How do you think this is going to affect what we see in these last two episodes in the way that the relationship between he and Danny and the animosity plays out because now Varys knows as well and obviously has different plans than Tyrion does when it comes to how he treats Danny. I think that Cersei taught Sansa well. This was a very Cersei move for Sansa and I was actually super disappointed in it. I thought it was a political move definitely but with them wanting to stay completely sovereign, like Sansa's just continuing to embroil herself in the politics of Westeros, because what happens if all of this happens and Danny still gets the throne? Well, now she knows that the North can't be trusted, and Sansa has potentially burned that bridge. She's also potentially burned that bridge with her brother by telling the secret she already swore that she would keep. So this is a a lose-lose and a very, very slim win for her as far as how this outcome could be. There are more chances of this not panning out in her favor than there are for it. And so I think it was a very stupid decision. I watched the movie White Men Can't Jump the other day, and Wesley Snipes gives Woody Harrelson some great advice in that movie. He says four words, listen to the woman. And when he talked about telling his sisters with Danny, and Danny said the only way that they would ever work is if his sisters never knew, she was completely right. And I don't see why, if he doesn't want the throne, why he felt the need to tell them. To be honest, I don't. Not telling somebody a truth doesn't make it a lie unless they ask and you make up a story. And so I didn't get why he told them other than his sense of honor or whatever. I'm just not quite sure what his motivation was to tell them if he doesn't 
want the throne like he claims, because there's nothing good that would come of letting anybody else know. Well, don't you think that maybe, you know, the secret can eat you alive? I feel like he's dying to be rid of it in a way. And even though telling him isn't necessarily going to help him solve the bigger problem, it's definitely a little bit of a relief to let that information out and not hold on to it. Yeah, I get that. But he can always just go talk to Bran about it. Or talk to a raven and a raven will go talk to Bran or whatever, however Bran talks to people. But I, I get that. <laughs> I, Bran I do doesn't get talk that. to people. Bran stares at people. I mean, because I do think that, uh, yes. Yeah, he talks yeah. at people. He sneaks up on you. But I, you know, I do think that maybe I thought a lot about Ned not even telling Caitlin where John came from and how that affected the way that she treated him. And so maybe he, maybe he thought about that. And I get that. Maybe you all of a sudden start thinking a little bit better of your dad if you find out he doesn't have a bastard and that he was hiding this pretty incredible secret his whole life. So there are reasons to tell, but for his motivations and his claiming to not want the throne and for his apparent love of Danny as his queen, it seems to make more sense to me to keep it a secret. Do you think that it's very true to John's character that he said something mm-hmm. for the for the aforementioned reasons? He has his entire life feels like a lie now because of a secret that somebody kept. And he believes in family above all else and has since season one. He went to the Night's Watch for the purpose of family and honor. And so to me, it feels very in character that he he decided to share that with, as the episode is titled, The Last of the Starks. However, the fact of the matter is he trusted them. They swore it and blatantly just gave him the finger, set that trash bag of poop on fire again, and was like, hey, Tyrion, I'm going to whisper this because I know your best friend is the Lord of Whispers. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's your running theme for this episode then. Right off the bat, you told us that, and it everything is lining up with Maggot Poop, one scene after another. Yep. I, I liked it, personally. I didn't have a problem with Sansa telling him, I don't care. Um, I like the fact that Tyrion knows. I think that she's trying to undermine Danny and... I'm okay with it because I'm not a huge Danny fan and I felt like Danny was going the wrong direction already. And I think that Sansa truly has the best interest of her people at heart. And she is the only one, in my opinion, that has that. And I don't think it's about her. I think she cares about the people more so than any other potential ruler that we have. And I, because of that, I understood why she would want to do this. Is does it, she care about the people or does she care about the North? She cares about the North more. Ooh, ooh, but, yeah. <laughs> <Burn>. but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, yes, she's breaking a promise that she just made and it comes off as incredibly, incredibly sad and just petty and terrible. But injecting more drama into the show i guess sibling rivalries now because you know it's going to come back to it's going to come out and they're going to have to have a fallout from this and again i go back to like i don't know what you're trying to do but you're introducing new dramatic plot points into a show that you have two episodes to finish everything up and now it's even more complicated so probably didn't need that um to happen you could have had Tyrion discover this some other way um, without having it create a rift between brother and sister, but I don't know where they're going with it anymore. So after this, we end up with the attack, right? We get to see them battle planning. I actually enjoyed that, even though their tactics didn't seem smart from the start. Um, <laughs> and I actually like that because I felt like it was consistent with what we saw in the Battle of Winterfell, that there are no tacticians in this group. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to lead an army. They don't know how to salt a a castle. They were not prepared for this ambush that came. They were not prepared for what Cersei may or may not be doing and getting ready for. And so it shows, like, to me, consistency with the terrible way in which they approach the Battle of Winterfell. We end up seeing them go out. Euron, of course, catches them off guard, kills the dragon right off the bat. Some awesome shots. I'm sorry. Catches them off guard. 
Chick was on a dragon 30,000 feet up in the air and couldn't see a freaking fleet of ships. You were above those mountains that they tried to play off he was hiding behind. And yet he could manage to land three perfect shots from a boat 30,000 feet down on the water and hit your dragon each time. So out of nowhere, I'm not buying. Homegirl just was not paying attention. It was the dumbest plot point this entire freaking episode. Sorry. No, tell us how you really feel. I'm fine with that. Jeremy, Jeremy, did you uh, have the same issue with the ambush scene? Yeah, oh, 100%. I feel like it was the writers saying, oh, it's still too unfair of a fight. We got to take out one more dragon before anything comes down because that was ridiculous that she couldn't see them. There was a scouting boat beforehand that didn't see them. Just all of the stupid that went into that. It made me angry. I agree. Didn't like it either. Thought it was ridiculous, especially once he started missing the dragon after that. And we literally saw probably two or three dozen of those harpoon arrows fly into the sky. And she somehow bobbed and weaved and was able to dodge them all. For half a second, I thought, oh, my God, they're going to take her out right here. Like, that is the ballsy move. There's going to be a major change in everything right here and they're he's gonna take her out like she's gonna go out completely unceremoniously on her dragon wow and honestly that would have been a i would have i would have accepted that i would have accepted that over this bogus that we were left with and i think she nosedived toward those ships and then did nothing exactly and i think that's what i was getting at earlier with the problem of D &D writing and not george rr martin the consistent way in which he's written this story is realism matters And if you poorly plan and you don't go into your battle with well thought out tactics, you die. And so they would have died in multiple times. The moment at the end of this episode where Cersei has that keep fortified, I was like, that's how you get a castle ready. Okay, that's what you should have done when the zombie White Walkers are coming at you. She has these harpoons pointed at them. And to be completely honest... I don't understand why that she didn't completely wipe out the army right there with those incredibly giant ballistas. Well, the army wasn't there. They're standing behind Danny. Not the entire army. Uh, it looked like it. it looked like I quite thought, a bit I of it, it was. was. Just, I thought it was just the survivors from like the boat attack, not everybody that like John was coming down with and everything like that. Oh, well, I, maybe it was the survivors. There's, there's quite a bit of people. I guess I just felt like. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe Cersei doesn't quite know how many they have left. And so she's yeah, because I thought it was like odds, more of a but, political mood. Yeah. But man, it just feels like, you know, they're completely helpless. And like, why, why of all things would Cersei not attack? That's not or a Cersei-like move. Why wouldn't she kill Tyrion? She's hired a guy and offered him a castle to go kill Tyrion, and he's right there. thought that was going to happen, too. Really yeah, did. did. When too. she put her hand up, I was like, oh my god, I swear if you do this. Then it would finally be a Game of Thrones moment in this season. Exactly. And we we just haven't gotten those. I I think we play it off probably with the idea that Cersei still has moments of a heart. It's harder to kill her brother to his face than it is to send an assassin to do it thousands of miles away. I can buy that a little bit, but I do feel like we're being robbed of those realistic situations. And instead, we're being set up with fan service moments like Jorah surviving everything in the Battle of Winterfell just to be in the perfect right place to die defending Danny. And yeah, instead of Jorah actually would have died when he charged with the Dothraki because that's what would have happened. And we would have never seen Jorah again. You know what I mean? It's unfortunate, but that's what really would have happened. And so we keep yeah. seeing this. Anyway, the fleet gets demolished, which was cool to see, by the way. Like, visually speaking, I really enjoyed watching those ballista tear the ships to pieces. Um, we got a beautiful moment between Grey Worm and Masandi, where they hold hands. But was it? It was like um, a three, like half a second. Grey Worm with his dad bod. Um, I, it was beautiful. <gasps> How dare you? Okay, I'm sorry. Hey, if you could find hey, me a dad that just looks saying. like that, then hey, you, you know I'm, different dads than I, got, I do. Uh, yeah, I mean... I'm just saying, he's chunking up a little. Uh, maybe it's the armor. Maybe it's the armor. Maybe it's just, you know, not having a lot of battles to fight. Maybe it's Maybelline. Armor doesn't make your face look chubby. That's true. That's true. I, when you fall in love, this is what happens to men, right? They they just let themselves go. 
just such I'm a, a lot heavier now than I was before I Once got married. Once you get the girl, it's all bets are off. Like, you didn't have to work for it anymore, he thought. But my point is, we get this really cute scene, I thought. I, I My heart just jumped out of my chest when I saw this moment. And Jeremy, I, it was kind of to the point that you made earlier, because it's not sex. We don't need to see them, like, rolling around. Well, I mean, okay. Be back. I guess. I, I like, guess. Ooh, but that, <laughs> scene, <laughs> that scene was everything. I guess they can't really completely do that anyway. But I really enjoyed the tenderness of that moment, and our hearts are ripped right back out when she goes missing and reemerges as Cersei's prisoner. Aaron, I know you have thoughts on this as well. How do you feel about the way that Masande goes out? This, to me, was probably the biggest patronizing moment of the show, and that was very upsetting to me as a woman and as a woman of color, is that the writers were literally like, we're going to take this woman who was a freed slave, a freed woman of color slave, put her back in chains, make a super snide comment when Cersei says, so much for the breaker of chains. So we put a freed slave back in chains and then beheaded her in front of her lover just to say, this bad guy is actually a bad guy. Like, there was no reason for them to do it the way that they did it. None whatsoever. Masandi comes from a peaceful people. She she most likely didn't even fight them when they took her captive. There was no reason to put her back in chains. None whatsoever. The only redeeming moment was her saying, burn this turd bucket down as her final word. Other than that, it was a complete, like, oh my god. I felt on fire. Felt like so, I, felt I understand. It. I understand. I understand. I do. I, from a narrative standpoint, she is Danny's advisor. She's Danny's best friend. And if Cersei has any intel that would tell her that, why would she not do what she does to provoke Danny further and send her into a rage where she's not thinking straight? I don't have a problem. I shouldn't, I hate to say it this way, but I don't have a problem with them killing her. I don't. I have a problem with the way they did it. I have a problem with the fact that they specifically put an entirely passive or peaceful person who is literally a freed slave in chains. When they haven't done, like, Ned Ned wasn't even in chains when they beheaded him. Like, there there was no reason for that. And oh, like I said, I, and I see what you're saying. When she's comment, standing at the top of the tower, there's no yeah, reason. Like, it's not like she's no running. There's no reason for in yeah. chains. And no, it's not even just in the tower. It's when Cersei is looking over the Red Keep as all the citizens are coming into the city, which by the way you said like, oh, that's how you prepare for a battle. Okay, well, King's Landing is three billion times bigger than Winterfell, and they have different layers to where they can bring people in further and further into the city to protect them, so they're not able to do that. Don't get me wrong, Winterfell was really poor battle tactics, but there's only so much that they could have done. But whenever Cersei is overseeing all that, and she like breaks the news about her pregnancy to Euron, even though it's not really his baby, but she tricked him into thinking that it is, like, they walk past Missandei whenever she's in there, and she's in chains for no reason. And that's when Cersei's like, so much for the breaker of chains. There's just no reason to make another slave comment to a woman that you already have captive that literally is not fighting you. Interesting. I, see, I, I guess I read it more as a very dark, evil dominance that she was trying to exert purposely. But she already she... was showing dominance by having her captive. Like yeah, she's I know, already but winning. That's not to me. That's not Cersei. It's it's embarrassment. It is intentionally putting her back at her lowest point in life. It's taking her back to the absolute basics. She's saying, "You had your freedom, and I'm taking it away from you. Like you, I'm going to take it away from you, and then I'm going to kill you." Like, but she already is, did that. And Masandi, but Masandi wasn't. I if, I have to go back and rewatch the episodes. But whenever she was in, I don't know. I don't think that it was Narth. Whenever Daenerys bought the Unsullied. To my knowledge, when she was What's-His-Name's advisor, that auctioneer guy, she wasn't even in chains then. She had the thing around her neck, I know that, but I don't think that she was shackled. There have been other prisoners, other people yeah. that have been held captive. If she was put in a cell, that would make more sense. But she was literally just standing in the keep in chains and standing above everybody else in chains. Like It just, didn't, it, it just seemed unnecessary to me, personally. I thought the same things that Aaron did about the chains, I thought that was problematic i didn't like that at all i also it made me think a lot about representation how she's the only woman of color on the show and while i do think it makes narrative sense for what happened to her to happen but that you paint yourself into a corner where you're killing off the only representation of you know any 
non-white woman on the show by doing that. So in that sense, it was hard to watch. As far as narratively, it definitely made sense. It made me very sad. I will say that she was probably my favorite character on the show. I love Natalie Emanuel. The way she portrayed her with just innocence and like fierce loyalty, I thought she was wonderful. And so I was very sad to see it happen. Does anybody know how Tyrion knows that Cersei's pregnant? Like, what's up with that? Jamie told him, but Jamie pretty, told him. Pretty sure, you're, pretty soon, Euron's gonna be like, "Wait no, a second. No, no, no. Jamie didn't tell him. Jamie didn't tell him. He found out at the end of last season when he took the White Walker in. Oh, that's mm. right. okay. Yeah, because right. whenever Cersei was trying to make a ploy to help Tyrion, she, he was like, oh, "You're pregnant." I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Because it felt like really strange at the beginning. I was like, wait a second. What? How does he know? And Euron just figured out. Like, you know. And she's that's what, not that's showing. That's what Euron's and, in his room right now thinking about. Hey, how did how did he know already? Obviously, no one is a huge fan of this episode. If nothing else, probably leaning more toward absolute hatred of this episode. <laughs> what do you guys think's gonna happen? Where are we going from here? We have two left. Is there any way for this to be salvaged in your mind? Is there any way for, obviously they can't undo what they've done, but is there any way for these next two episodes to win you back over and have you recapture that feeling of love for this series that we all started with? I honestly, I don't know. We're past the halfway point. I don't, I will still have a soft spot in my heart for the series, but the season is so far at the almost the very, very bottom, if not the bottom for me. And given the fact that D&D are writing the last two episodes, I really don't have high hopes. Full disclosure. There's very little that I could see them resolving at this point that doesn't fall into massive stereotypical tropes. Oh, along the same lines, I if there's one positive I take from this episode, I really did this week take kind of a 180 on Danny. I just started thinking, is she going mad because of who she was and who she is and who her parents were? Or is she going mad because of the incompetence of her advisors and her friends dying? All this stuff, these circumstances around her. The one thing that had kept me from thinking, okay, 100% Jon Snow is on the Iron Throne at the end of this thing was that in our current climate, I thought it would be too stereotypical, like Aaron said, to tropey for the white man to be the guy who ascends to the throne but after this episode i there's like no doubt in my mind that's gonna happen and one way that they could salvage that would be if it didn't happen if if danny was on the throne if sansa was on the if somebody other than what you would expect from reading 100 year old night stories was on the throne at the end of this show but i don't think that's gonna happen yeah i think it feels to me like we're being force-fed John as the hero without even actually really making him the hero. It's really weird. And it's almost like they've gotten themselves into this corner and John, it does. It does seem like they're pushing him even though he's not the best qualified and it hasn't made sense up until now, but they're kind of trying to force it in and it's awkward and it doesn't. So I wouldn't be surprised either at this point. I long have held the belief that it would never be John. But yeah, I maybe it is. And that would be a real disappointment for sure. I, I don't think that Danny will be there. However, Danny still has time for the redemption. Should she decide not to murder these 10,000 people at the front of the Red Keep, it could lead us to her being able to take the throne in a way that is working with Sansa. Perhaps if John is killed and the two of the women end up ruling the area together, she lets Sansa take the North and she rules as a good queen uh, over the seven kingdoms. I wouldn't hate that at all. Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen. I, what I would love to see from the show is more of that game of Thrones cutthroatness that, has been missing in my opinion that I talked about. I think we ended on episode four with Danny walking away, angry, scowling. If Cersei was to attack right now while she's walking away, if episode five was to open up with them shooting Danny in the back, I would stand up and cheer and simultaneously be sad, but I, it would be amazing to me 
if it was just initiated right there. Like something like that, I feel like has to happen. I'm tired of the force fed, emotionally dramatic setups for the deaths that we've gotten. Something needs to be shocking and unexpected for us to get back to the Game of Thrones we know. And like you guys, I'm just not confident that that's going to happen, unfortunately. But I guess we will find out and uh, we'll be back to talk about it and hopefully we'll be a lot more positive on the next episode if if uh if they will just give us the opportunity to right come on guys write these episodes better well thank you guys for coming on and talking through this one again um, there's still definitely some stuff that i think we're all excited to see zombie mountain versus the hound being one of them the whole area and hound storyline with the game yeah, there's some stuff still to be played out that should be fun and exciting, other than who's going to end up on the throne. But one thing, uh, it'll definitely be worth talking about, that's for sure. So we'll be back next week, listeners. Tune in then, and keep watching.